Hi friends, just before we dive into today's episode, I want to ask a huge favor from you. Would you please consider being a supporter of the Why Catholic Podcast? There's four ways you can do this. First, you can become a patron and financially support this podcast. The basic level is $5 a month. To become a patron, go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Secondly, you can support this podcast by purchasing something from the Why Catholic merch shop on Etsy. Just go to etsy.com slash shop slash whycatholic. Third, you can also support Why Catholic by sharing episodes with your community. And lastly, you can support Why Catholic by inviting me to come and speak at your next parish event. For more information about that, please send me an email at whycatholic@substack.com. Thank you, friends, for your help. I couldn't do this without you. Early on, in my time as a pastor of a Seventh-day Baptist church, I received an email from a man named Juan, who said that he was pastoring an independent church with similar beliefs and practices as ours. We met one day over lunch, and Juan expressed interest in having his church join our denomination. In a tiny diminishing denomination of less than 5,000 members in the United States, a new church congregation was a huge deal, but it also posed quite a challenge. You see, my congregation was predominantly white, retired folk, many of whom were fairly right-winged. Juan's congregation was 100% Latino, mainly from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. A couple of people in our congregation expressed concern over the legal status of the individuals in Juan's congregation, which desired to become our sister church. They felt that we might be violating the law by somehow harboring illegal immigrants, or at the very least condoning illegal immigration. Now, I never asked how many of Juan's congregants were undocumented, but I assume there were some. The work I did with Juan's church opened the door for a number of opportunities with the Latino community, and as one who speaks Spanish as a second language, I relished every interaction I had with them. On one occasion, I attended a meeting where my friends who are immigration attorneys were presenting on some of the changes on United States immigration law. At this meeting, people shared their experience coming into the United States. One person stood up and told his story of crossing the southern border illegally and being chased by immigration police and their dogs. With tears in his eyes, he told the story of climbing a tree and clinging onto it for dear life, as the dogs circled below, trying to track his scent. He prayed that God would deliver him, and when he opened his eyes, the dogs and the officers were gone. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. Since episode 73, we've been focusing on Catholic ethos. Ethos means the characteristic spirit of a community as manifested in its beliefs. Each of these episodes focuses on the way Catholicism gets lived out. A lot of times you'll hear these words or phrases used, but maybe not get a thorough explanation about what they mean. Today, for this final episode in this series, I want to talk about Catholic social justice teaching. Now, I want to acknowledge something right from the start. When we talk about social justice, we're going to get into political issues. I've gotten one negative rating on Apple Podcasts, and it was from someone who accused me of bringing politics into this podcast when I was talking about the topic of abortion, and I used the term woke. You know, the reason topics become political is because they are first moral. And what I hate so much about political parties is that they take illogical and inconsistent sides. So what tends to happen is that people are influenced on an issue based on their politics rather than letting their faith dictate where they should stand on an issue when it enters the political realm. We shouldn't be more conservative than Jesus, nor more liberal. We should neither desire to be right or to be left, but rather let Jesus become our guide on what the center is. 
So in the opening story, if you are more right-winged, you may have bristled with the thought of someone who broke the law and gave God the credit for escaping the authorities. But what we always have to consider is the justice of our laws. For example, we praise the people who broke the laws of Nazi Germany and helped hide innocent Jews. We celebrate the stories of missionaries like Francis Xavier, who illegally ministered in countries like Japan. So I always remind people that just because it's our country's law or policy doesn't necessarily mean it's good or right or just. So what I want to do today is to take a look at Catholic social justice teaching. The term social justice can mean lots of things to lots of people, but just as we observed in the episodes on transcendentals and virtues, the Catholic Church has defined what it means when it says social justice, and so we can look at the Church to guide us on these particular issues. The principles of Catholic social justice teaching come from the Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church, which was published in June 2004 by Cardinal Renato Raffaele Martino, President of the Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace, under the guidance of St. Pope John Paul II. While the document lists a number of principles, most agree that you can break these principles down into seven categories or themes. The seven themes are respect for life and the dignity of the human person, call to family, community, and participation, rights and responsibilities, option for the poor and vulnerable, the dignity of work and the rights of workers, solidarity, and care for God's creation. In the future, I may do a whole series on Catholic social teaching where each theme is given its own episode, but today I merely want to briefly address social justice as it applies to the Catholic faith, because we often hear the term social justice, but it doesn't really get explained. We begin with respect for life and the dignity of the human person. This is the foundational principle for all of the Catholic teaching on social justice because dignity of the human person is the foundation of a moral vision for society. You'll see that as we talk about the principles, they really all ride on this basis that the human being is precious and endowed by the Creator. One of the criticisms I hear from pro-choice people is that pro-life people only care about protecting the fetus. First, that's a lazy caricature. And secondly, the whole notion of this dignity of life doesn't stop at birth. In fact, the whole premise should govern how we think about business and government. Are they fostering environments that dignify the human being and allow them to flourish in life? The second theme is rights and responsibilities. If we are to strive for the dignity of the person, then we must understand that the person has certain rights. This includes the right to food, work, education, and clothing. It also includes aspects like the right to emigrate in order to find work. There's also other rights like the right to practicing one's religion. Those in power have the responsibility to ensure that the rights of those under their power have access to these rights. And at the same time, we citizens have the responsibility to do things like vote for people that are going to protect these rights, as well as pay taxes in order to support a government that can protect these rights. The third theme is family, community, and participation. If you recall way back in episode 6, I did an episode entitled With God in Community. I did this as an introduction to the topic of the sacramental worldview because I wanted to impress on you the importance of community in the life of the Christian. God is a communal God, one being in three persons, and he created us for community. The whole story of Israel, the whole story of the church are stories about living in community together. 
Thus, the family is the core relationship in society. St. Paul John Paul II said, quote, The first and fundamental structure for a human ecology is the family, founded on marriage, in which the mutual gift of self as husband and wife creates an environment in which children can be born and develop their potentialities, become aware of their dignity, and prepare to face their unique and individual destiny, end quote. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops stated, quote, The long-range future of this nation is intimately linked with the well-being of families, for the family is the most basic form of human community, end quote. And there's this chilling scene in the book of Joshua about a man named Achan. I talked about this story in episode 27 called The Jewish Roots of Reconciliation. Achan sinned by taking spoils of war and hiding them in his tent. And because of his sin, Israel lost their next battle. God then gave Joshua specific instructions on how to determine the guilty party. The next day, the Israelites separated into their 12 tribes. Then God pointed out the offending tribe. Then each clan in the tribe came forward. God pointed out the offending clan. Then each family came forward until God pointed out the offending family, Achan and his family, who were all stoned to death for Achan's sin. I think what's neat about this story is that it shows this progression of community. It begins with the family and goes out from there. While we likely don't have clans and tribes, we do have other communal relationships, towns, workplaces, unions, etc. We have a right to participate in society, but our society begins and is based on the family. The fourth theme is option for the poor and vulnerable. How our society treats those most in need speaks to the moral health of our society. The Bible talks over and over about caring for the poor and the vulnerable. In the life of the early church, one of the first acts was to establish the diaconate who could focus on serving the widows and orphans. The church's social teaching regarding the poor and vulnerable is a radical mission. For example, in Economic Justice for All, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops noted, quote, The obligation to provide justice for all means that the poor have the single most urgent economic claim on the conscience of the nation, end quote. Pope St. Paul VI said, quote, In teaching us charity, the gospel instructs us in the preferential respect due to the poor and the special situation they have in society. The more fortunate should renounce some of their rights so as to place their goods more generously at the service of others, end quote. Economic Justice for All goes on to say, quote, The primary purpose of this special commitment to the poor is to enable them to become active participants in the life of society. It is to enable all persons to share in and contribute to the common good. The option for the poor, therefore, is not an adversarial slogan that pits one group or class against another. Rather, it states that the deprivation and powerlessness of the poor wounds the whole community. The extent of their suffering is a measure of how far we are from being a true community of persons. These wounds will be healed only by greater solidarity with the poor and among the poor themselves, end quote. I think this is such an important point. There's a pastoral element involved in helping the poor and vulnerable. It's not just about giving money, though sometimes giving money is an essential part of helping the poor. It's helping them become active participants in the life of society. 
Episode 13 was my first interview, and it was with a young man named Devin Halford, who is a missionary with Christ in the City. Originally, he was working with the homeless in Denver, and today he is working with the homeless in Philadelphia. If you listen to Devin talk about his work, he never refers to people as homeless. He calls them friends. His primary mission is to befriend them, to treat them with dignity and respect, and show them love. As he's explained to me, one of the primary reasons these individuals are homeless isn't because they just don't have money or a job, but they don't have relationships. So the first thing they aim to do is to create relationships as a way of making that first step towards helping this person become an active participant in society. One of the highlights of living in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, is the work the city does with immigrants, particularly refugees. This small city of about 60,000 takes in more refugees per capita than any other city in the United States. They have a really good system to accomplish this as well. People work together to help a refugee find housing, buy necessary items, learn English, and they slowly wean them off of complete support. It's all meant to help the refugee family become participating and contributing members of society. The fifth theme is the dignity of work and the rights of workers. Boy, this topic is near and dear to me. I worked at a Protestant Christian school for five years. I didn't make a lot of money, but I didn't teach because of the money. However, there was a season when the economy was struggling, enrollment was down, and our pay was frozen. The teachers were frustrated, morale was low, and when we voiced our concern, we were reminded that we were doing this for ministry. It felt like we were being taken advantage of. The Catholic social teaching regarding work stems from an idea that we work to live, not the other way around. Our jobs shouldn't inhibit time with our family and shouldn't prevent us from worshiping and should pay us fairly. I'll give you another example. When I was working at a Catholic school, they held an open house for prospective students on Sundays. The reason they did this was because they found that Saturdays were not well attended, especially since kids were involved in sports and other activities on Saturdays. At the same time, I was a Protestant pastor, and this really irked me. For Catholics, they could substitute Sunday Mass for a Saturday Vigil Mass. My church had one service on Sundays at 11 a.m. I also felt that obligating people to work on Sundays really violated the spirit of teaching of the Catholic faith. I brought this up to the principal, who was irritated at me for missing a required day, but in the end, he agreed to let me use a personal day. This is an example where I felt, and still feel like, a Catholic institution violated its own ethics. Here in the United States, I think there are some depraved workplace norms. I'll begin with the normalization of layoffs. You know, sometimes they're necessary, but boy oh boy, do we make it far too easy in this country to let go of employees. I was talking to my financial advisor a couple of weeks back about possible companies to invest in. I proposed one who beat their most recent earning projections, but come to find out they did this primarily by reducing their workforce. I can think of few things more unconscionable than letting go of the people that helped your success right before you have to report on your success metrics. I could go on and on, but let's continue with number six, solidarity. Solidarity means that we're one human family, regardless of our race and nationality. We are brothers and sisters of people who live in other parts of the world. We are our brother's keeper, so to speak. You know, when we apply the theme of solidarity with the theme of the dignity of work and the worker, it really should inform on how our commerce affects the workers in other countries. In my home, we have an Apple ecosystem. It's nice to have these electronics, 
But if I'm striving for that unity of life, for living according to these principles, I have to consider how these products affect the lives of the workers in Asian countries. Yeah, I don't want to pay more than I already have to for an iPhone, but is that less expensive price enslaving my brother and sister across the ocean? These are things to consider. The seventh theme is care for God's creation. God gave us this earth and told us to be caretakers of it. Negative actions like over-deforestation, dumping into water sources, and pollution don't just have immediate effects, but they affect generations to come. I live near Park City, Utah, which was once a silver mining town. Now it's famous for its ski resorts, Olympic Park, and the Sundance Film Festival. However, mining still affects this town. In fact, Park City has gone through major efforts to mitigate poisons found in the soil near some of its schools as a result of the city's mining history. In some ways, we really don't know the long-term environmental effects of our various productions, but we certainly know a lot more than we used to. Beware of the temptation to trade the short-term benefits of cost and efficiency with the long-term negative effects on our planet. In the end, the Catholic social teaching is radical. Listen to how Pope St. John Paul II put it, quote, The needs of the poor take priority over the desires of the rich, the rights of workers over the maximization of profits, the preservation of the environment over uncontrolled industrial expansion, the production to meet social needs over production for military purposes, end quote. It sounds a lot like Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers, etc. Christianity is a backwards kingdom made up of countercultural principles. If this episode made you feel uncomfortable, let me suggest that you take the time to read Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church, which I've linked to in the show notes, and examine the areas of your life that may contradict the church's teaching on social justice. Likewise, if you found yourself getting irked due to your political affiliation, or maybe you thought that this episode is too political, let me suggest that your politics are driving your positions on social justice rather than your faith. Like I mentioned before, political parties take inconsistent stances. For example, why should one have to choose between being pro-life or being pro-environment? If your stances on social justice don't fit within a particular political framework, then let me suggest that you're right where you should be. Catholic social teaching doesn't fit in today's right or left, and so it behooves us to guide our society in these directions. And we can do that in all sorts of ways, whether it's how we treat people on a daily basis, how we help the poor, how we manage our companies, who we vote for, etc. Every single one of us can play a role in creating a more just society. I did a progression of episodes here intentionally. In episode 77, I talked about the transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty. I mentioned that everything has some level of truth, goodness, and beauty, and everything can be measured by these transcendentals. In the last episode, I talked about virtue, particularly the cardinal virtues of prudence, temperance, fortitude, and justice. These are what it means to be a good person. In this episode, I talked about social justice. Think about it this way. Social justice is about applying those virtues towards our society in order to foster truth, goodness, and beauty. By doing this, we maintain a unity of life whereby our interior life and our exterior life are in accord and whereby we are working to do God's will on earth as it is done in heaven. 
Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode in your email inbox. As a subscriber, you get a special discount code to the Why Catholic Etsy store. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it, and patrons get some extra perks. To become a free subscriber or a patron, just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Also join me on Instagram at whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.